Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines the role of design in shaping society and culture. Have you ever heard of a family office? Jake Milgram is one of three siblings who founded Triple, an ethical and transparent family office focused on impact investment in the usually secretive and opaque world of family offices. In this episode, we find out what family offices are and how Jake and his siblings are building a roadmap and replicable business model for high-wealth individuals to encourage greater investment in ethical startups, real estate, shares, and more. Jake's not a designer, but we wanted to have him on the podcast for his insight into sustainability from an investment perspective, which is often a critical component for getting projects off the ground. We really hope you enjoy the chat. Hey, Jake. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Could you give us an overview of Triple and the work that you do? Yeah, sure. So um, thanks so much for having me. Um, Triple is a family office. It's a private investment company and we do 100% impact investing. So the heart of it, it's to use all of our capital resources for good. We invest across public equities. We invest in infrastructure, in public, in debt and in venture capital. And we also do grant making. And at the core, it's really to try and create a replicable investment model that shows that impact investing is quite standard. Um, You can make the same returns. You can feel good about what you're doing. And it's the way of the future, really. And, uh, you know, we have lent on a lot of things from people who have done this before us. We're nowhere near the first. Um, We've taken all their learnings, taken their frameworks and tried to make that work for us and sort of share that with the people who are coming next. The first thing I wanted to touch on was um, basically the idea of a family office. Can we just chat a little bit more about uh, why family offices exist and um, what the purpose is and, and how yours is a bit different? Yeah, so a family office is basically just a entity for a family who has a business that generates revenue or a you know, a sale of a large asset or something like that, where they've got a pool of money and they want to make decisions together um, for investments. And it is super broad. There is nothing at all streamlined. So a, a family office could look completely different to another family office. There's generally no transparency because you're only reporting back to yourself and your family members. And so it can be a really tricky thing and it can be a really loose term um, and sizes of the ma- uh, the amount of money in a family office can tra- can change drastically. Um, I think that's sort of the broad overview. For us, uh, there was a, a sale of a, a property um, and myself, my sister, Beck, and my brother, Adam, so the three of us run triple together, we decided and consulted with our mum that it was a good opportunity for us to work together on an investment piece um, and be a family office. The way we're sort of different is that we have clear sort of strategic decision-making around returns, around asset allocations, and around transparency that make it a little bit different from a normal family office. Yeah, okay. So that that idea of the the family office being a bit of an opaque organization. That's something that you guys wanted to do quite differently. Yeah, I think the reason for a family office to be opaque generally is because there's no need for them to be transparent. 
and with what we're doing is we wanted to share the idea of impact investing and help others on their you know journey to get there and the only way to do that was to be transparent and so sort of for us the need to be transparent is core to our desires and core to what we're trying to do so it didn't make sense for us just to be like a normal family office because we actually need to report out in order to help other people. You know, from our previous conversation, I remember that you guys had spent a long time just discussing how you might um, form form the business, form the company. Um, it sounds sounded like a lot of thinking had gone into the structure. When you were having those conversations, what what were the problems that you were responding to in the industry? What were the things you wanted to do differently? That's a, that's a really good question. I think I'm, I'm lucky because I hardly knew the industry, to be honest, when, I, when we started. And my brother and my sister are a bit older than me, so they had a little bit more of an idea into it. And so for me, I didn't actually know the issues that much when we started, but we did have a really good structure, and I now see the benefits of that. One of the things is just working with siblings is, you know, can be really challenging. And so from the start, we decided that there was a veto rule. So if any of the three of us didn't like a specific deal, they could veto it straight away and it would just kill it. The other thing is that for a deal to go through, it had to be two people excited about it at a minimum. So if the third person was just a bit of a met on it, that's fine. But it needed two people to be excited. And that really made the decision-making process easier. It cleared it up and from anecdotal stories family offices can run into trouble when there's not clear decision making and you know family issues the other thing was that we we wanted to have a clear investment mandate so we wanted to have an allocation into each asset class very clearly described we wanted to have we had a return expectation and we set about that we spent a long time figuring that out because we also wanted it to look completely vanilla so that any normal investor could look at that and say, okay, I totally understand this. And then when they look deeper into the specific investments, they see they're all on some level for purpose as well, as opposed to if we were a family office who just invested in venture capital in startups, most family offices would look at that and say, that's just too risky for us. It's it's right to say that a family office is, um, uh, I suppose, dealing with the wealth of a single individual or, or a family, whereas a you know an, another type of investment company would be dealing with the wealth of a number of different people. Is that right? Yeah, and so I think that's sort of the difference between a family office and a fund. A fund is a pool of people's money, whereas a family office is a singular. Um, and there are all shapes and sizes with, you know, different return expectations and different desires. Most of the time, there's a financial desire, but that's only part of it. There's also a desire for some other thing, and it's completely dependent on the interests of the family at the, at the center of it. Okay, that's really interesting. Do you have any idea what other um, interests might play a role in other family offices? Yeah, so some some families just love property. And so, you know, they have a financial expectation, but they're just looking at property opportunities. Some people, so it can be sort of the type of investment or it can also be the, I guess, impact of the investment. So we know people who only invest in things 
that have an impact on the climate, for example, whereas we are totally agnostic to what investment type it is and we're totally agnostic to the impact of it. Um, I guess that was one of the things that we set up from the start as well because the three of us, we couldn't align specifically on a few things. And so we thought, well, let's just open up the bucket. We'll catch everything and maybe through time we'll find things that specifically interest us. You said a bit earlier that um, the you, your older siblings had more of a background in finance but you were new to it. And what what was everyone's backgrounds and how did you end up deciding to um, yeah to go into this this field in, into this world of impact investment? Yeah, so my my brother had been investing in some way or another for about 10 years before we before we started triple and because of that we always had a level of understanding about investments during his investment process he came across impact investing quite early on and so there was only a, a small number of people in australia that were doing impact investing and he he sort of became part of that group as a, on a small level and so from that the three of us had this understanding of investment and we all just knew that impact investing was the only way forward. There was there will be a point in time where people just won't do other types of investments. And so we had we were lucky that we got a really clear insight to that through his experiences. And so it became very obvious to us that that was the way forward. And it was also an area that we all wanted to learn about and we all felt a responsibility. So because we're privileged and because we do have this capital resource that prior to this asset being sold we didn't actually have any control over and there wasn't a formal family office set up before this that we we felt responsible and that if we had this opportunity we needed to you know live in line with our values including that capital resource so it was an opportunity that we wanted but we also felt like we couldn't say no to and then we're all sort of believers in the learn by doing. And so we just jumped straight in and we're lucky because of Adam's previous experience. We had a lot of contacts that we could lean on at the start and we could learn from other people and we could share information and the impact investing community is very sharing because it's so small, which is really nice. There's no, no real competitiveness. And that's sort of how it started. And, Along this journey, most of us are doing other things at the same time and they're all sort of interrelated. And so we'll hear about something in a different venture or job that we're doing and then we'll bring that into triple and we'll use the learning and it's sort of constantly evolving. And where do you guys think you are on the journey in terms of um, getting to your desired level of replicability or, um, or impact? Um. I'd say very early. I think creating a replicable model can have really far-reaching impact and I think it's really important. And even though it's done before, I think that we need to do it and somebody else needs to do it and it just has to keep happening until everyone's doing it. In saying that, in order to make something replicable for everyone, we can't be as impact-oriented as we might want to be. And I think that there will be a point in time where we sort of draw a line in the sand. We say, 
what we've done to date has been a really good model that we can share with people. We create a report or a case study or something on what we've done. And then from that moment forward, we have a different focus. And that, that could be a bunch of things that could be just climate. It could be just startups. I have no idea. But I think that there's an opportunity to be much more impactful, um, still make the financial returns we're expecting, but by having a narrower focus. I'd love to just hear a bit more about how you uh, will be able to, to share what you've learned with other people so it's, it's really easy um, for, for other people to set up businesses like this. Yeah, I think it's not actually any harder than typical investing. You just have to look in different spaces and you have to, you have to be investing for the long run. So basically all of our investments are long-term, even if it so happens that we have a public stock and we decide to sell it tomorrow because either we don't like the impact or we no longer believe in it or a whole different host of reasons. When we think about things, we think about them on a five-year timescale, if not longer. And in doing that, I think you just have to have a vision of what the future might look like. And to me, the future is a much more sustainable place. It's much more caring. It has more voices in the room. It's much more diverse. It's much more open. And I think when you are focusing on those things, finding investments that fit within that model becomes easier. Whereas if you're focusing on, I like this area, so I should buy a property or I want this financial returns in the next six months, they're just not things you're thinking about. So I think more than anything, it's just a shift in perspective. And then when you do that, you then need to build the community around you. So it takes time to find those people who are aligned to bring you opportunities, to share opportunities with, to upskill, to gain different insights. And so it's, I think more than anything, it's a desire to change is the hardest part. And that's why we're trying to do something replicable to show that it's not actually hard. Once you have the desire, you can do it, but you need that desire in the first place. And for some reason that I don't know, it's really hard to change people's mind and to get them to shift. And it might be that it's fear. It might be that they don't believe in the financial return. It might be ego. It, you know, it's a whole bunch of things. Um, but we certainly don't know what the answer is to try and shift people. But we felt like this was a necessary step in trying to help people get there. You mentioned diversity there. And I noticed in your uh, end of year report that last year you implemented an advisory board, which is made up of quite a diverse range of people. So I'll just, I'll just list them because I think it helps illustrate the point. Um, there's Amelia Telford, who's a young Aboriginal and South Sea Islander woman from Bunjalong country. And she's also the national director of the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. There's Nick Moratus, who's the CEO at the Foundation for Young Australians. There's Caroline Vu, who works at Impact Investment Group as 
its head of strategic initiatives. And there's Kate Glazebrook, who is chair, co-founder and former CEO of Applied, which is a platform that has redesigned the hiring process to remove bias and help teams find the best candidate for the role. So quite, quite an interesting group with um, some diversity across, across um, age, ethnicity um, and gender, which, you know, it, it all sounds, it sounds really, really interesting and powerful. What, what led you to, um, to, to make that decision to implement that, that group of people? Yeah, so I guess at the crux of it, we're, we're three siblings working together and in that we have similar perspectives. So obviously we have different perspectives from each other, but we do come from the same background. We have similar life experiences and we fundamentally believe that with diverse perspectives you get better outcomes and so we couldn't bring people in necessarily because we were a family we're just three and so we thought how do we get a really good range of diverse perspectives and so the the result of that was an advisory board and most or some family offices have financial advisors we specifically didn't want that at least to start with because it's also a learning process for us and we we wanted to learn that financial rigor and we didn't want to just palm that off so also you know it's hard to find financial advisors who are super impact aligned and all that sort of stuff but we we decided to set up an advisory board but from a impact perspective and not necessarily like, is this deal impact, but more strategy, high level, what are we missing? What aren't we thinking about? Um, and so it became obvious to us that we wanted to find people who we really trusted and believed in. And so they sort of came from our sort of not inner network, but our comfortable network of people who we know through working with specific organizations or worked with someone who we really trust. And so we set up the group just to really give us different perspectives. Um, and then we've had, we've, they've been around for about a year and they've been so useful, like blown away by how helpful they've been from a specific sense on certain deals where we can ask them because that's their area of expertise to strategy, to also just calling us out on our bullshit. So being a family, we didn't have anyone to sort of critique us except for ourselves. And it's really, really, really helpful having them there for that. I think one of the obvious points is that we keep talking about how we want to be replicable and that's sort of the crux of what we're doing. And they just sort of said to us, well, if that's the case, where's your comm strategy? How, how are you doing this? How are you know, you're doing the work, but are you actually replicable if nobody hears it? And just, you know, seems super obvious, but we had just never thought about that. And so now that's, you know, part of our thinking and how do we do that and how do we represent and how do we share? Now, it's, it's great to work with a diverse group of people because you get these interesting solutions that, that are the product of a number of minds working together on something. But sometimes a product of that diversity is, you know, a bit of disharmony or, or a... Um, an inability to to reach an agreement at times. So I'm interested to know what it's like working with the group and um, how it's all going. I think we've taken it for granted. 
but it's just been really fluid, really, really amazing. Everything's been over Zoom because it's all been COVID time, which obviously makes it harder and much harder to get those personal connections. But it seems that the groups, they really like each other and it really helps to work together when you actually like each other. Um, They all have different skill sets. So it wasn't intentional. It's definitely not intentional that we have people siloed off and we ask you for your skill and somebody else for their skill. But it was important to us that we covered a range of skills with the people that we were um, adding to the advisory board. And so they do all have a different perspective on things and they also have a different learning curve. So we actually, we did some like intros into like financials 101 and things like that. And then we also like done deep dives into granting because, you know, we've got people from a financial background and people from a a more philanthropic background. So it, it's been really good. The way we normally do it is we, we give them an update on where we're at and there's a whole bunch of pre-reading and investments that we've made since our last meeting. And basically just looking for feedback. Did we, we made it, we made a decision to go in a deal, but was that a dumb idea? Did we miss something completely? So we're just looking for feedback on that. And then we normally have a main topic that we want to discuss. And it's our, our best case scenario is that we, put it out there and throw to them and they just sort of rip into it and we just get their feedback and their perspective. And it's not to say we go with that perspective, but it's super helpful to have different perspectives into our decision-making. Do you think it's a way that other businesses could operate? Do you think that a business like, like Dreamer, like my business, for example, could have a, a diverse advisory board made up of people with you know that are a range of ages genders um, ethnicities religions do you think that sort of thing is transferable to other companies or or is it particularly helpful in this instance i i hope so i hope that that could be useful there's we we decided from the start that we wanted it to be a paid role and we wanted to make sure that everyone who was giving their time was reimbursed appropriately Um, so that could definitely make it harder for other organizations because the financial return isn't so clear cut. We believe that we're making better decisions because of it, but we're not going to know what the financial return on that is. So that could be a challenge. It's also really good timing for us. We've been doing this for about three years, but our strategy is up for review basically. So we're really looking at how we move forward and what we prioritize and how we build out our team and what we focus on and where we put our energy. And so there's a lot of open questions that I think it's really amazing to have their insight to. And I think that for a more sort of established company who have their path more clearly drawn, it might be less useful. Um, but like I'm a firm believer that more diverse voices in the room create better outcomes because how could one person with a specific point of view understand what the community wants given that they only have their own perspective and not the perspective of the community? Uh, Let's move on and have a chat about how you guys work um, in terms of your workplace. Um, I know that previously you were working remotely but have recently started 
construction on a new shared workplace. What um, what led you to decide to go into a physical space and how do you foresee that, yeah, I suppose, amplifying the kind of work that you do? Yeah, so we, Beck has been living overseas up until really recently and she was in Byron before that. So we were always a virtual team first. And in saying that though, we did have a few desks um, that we were renting out from a, a company that we work closely with. So we did have a physical space and we have a lot of meetings. This job is just meeting after meeting and meeting new people. And so it's really, it's really great to be able to do that in person. Obviously COVID now makes it harder. And so we started working on this office building pre COVID. So it's hard to know exactly what it's going to look like in the future. Definitely more, definitely more zoom meetings. Um, and so we've actually decided that we're going to have a few smaller meeting rooms that are for, you know, one or two people who are having video meetings, um, which is actually, it's quite lucky that we're in that design stage while we could make those decisions. So that was a really good thing. Um, but we've always wanted to have a space and we like to be, you know, around people who are doing amazing things. And so we're currently a team of four. We think in six months to a year time, we're probably going to be a team of five or six. And the building that we're working on is probably a workplace for 30 to 50. So the way we imagine it is that we will be there and that we will sort of pick and choose the tenants that come and work in that office and create a little community of companies who are aligned, that work well together, that can share ideas and share competencies and that it just become a really nice place to work. And then um, from a more, you know, feeling aesthetic perspective, um, we've, we're trying to design it with a more home feeling. So uh, a big open kitchen in the middle to try and um, create a more relaxed vibe and everyone just sort of working out in the open. And then there'll be quiet areas that you can sneak away to, to have a meeting or have a private phone call, but it's definitely a, a sharing place. But, and yeah, I guess the goal is that it can make us better so we can be more efficient in person um, but we can also surround ourselves with people doing interesting things um, that can inspire us. We can help them. They can help us. And and a great place to be just to, you know, have fun and enjoy work. We are currently in a, a shared space as well um, with a bunch of other like-minded practices and it. it does work very well for sharing ideas and, you know, facilitating conversations with a range of people that might not occur and if you're in a small space. How do you think you'll pick the people that go into there with you? That's a really, really good question. We've briefly spoken about it a few times, but we don't have a good answer. We think we think one thing that's necessary for the office is a community manager, office manager type person and whether that's a full-time role or you, someone who works within the building and then also does a bit of that. Um, we think that's going to be really important and we, we hope to find somebody who is really excited about this idea of bringing everyone together. So I think to start with, there are a few companies who we work closely with who need office space, who we enjoy working with them. So it's just sort of a natural thing. Um, and then I think over time it will be, companies that we invest in companies where 
the services are really useful to us or our the companies we invest in, people who are aligned. I think, but I think more than anything, just like a really nice cohesive group, but I don't have a good answer on how that comes together. Um, another thing that we really want to do is have events there. And so any of the companies that are working out of there can have a night or anything like that. And I think that that's, that'll be really important to the sort of vibe of the office place that it's really communal, but also a great place for learning. That's what we've found here. I think is that the the events after work and the yeah the periphery conversations and opportunities to have lunch really are the that's the the added value. Um, probably a lot more than just the actual quality of the the space. Yeah, and I think that sort of COVID sort of changed it, and we're we're wondering, you know, do people want a desk? to sit at or do they just want a place where they can come in and have meetings and then they can go home and do the rest of their computer work from, from home. So the way it actually works in like the way it actually works is yet to be defined. And so we're still sort of figuring that out. So I've read your 2020 report, which I thought was really interesting. And one of the things that, that really struck me was how uh, reflective that you guys are um, on, you know, what's happened in the last year. And what I particularly liked was the three key headings that described some of the, the major things that had happened. The first one was things that you've been excited about. The second, ones, second one was um, uh, what we've been challenged by. And the final one was what we've done badly, which I thought was just a really great thing to have in a report because it's, turns it into from a, a marketing thing that's about spin to being in a really effective document for people to reflect on on what they've done and, and how they can uh, strengthen their learning, you know, for the next year. And I, I can see that learning has been really important um, to you guys already. So I'm really interested to hear a bit more about this reflection process that happens for you guys, mm. how often that you reflect, you know, is that a weekly thing or monthly and how is it baked into the way that you work? Yeah, so I think I have to give props to Beck for this. She she started those sort of three questions and she's quite a reflective person in just nature. So I think that was really helpful for us. It We don't actually reflect very often because it just becomes very obvious. So, for example, at the moment we we are granting but we haven't updated our granting strategy for about two years and it's making decision-making worse because we don't have a clear strategy that we feel really aligned to. We're still comfortable with it, but we think it's time to update it. But there's a sort of a priority list of things to do and it keeps getting knocked down because it's not urgent. And it is so obvious that when we go to reflect again, it will be, okay, we haven't focused enough time on our granting strategy. And so we don't do it often, but when we do the reporting, the things sort of scream out to us. And I think that's also one of the reasons that this reporting is so important is that it forces us to reflect. And we would still reflect without it, but not to the same extent. And we wouldn't be as open and honest with ourselves because we wouldn't have to be. But when it's, you know, there on paper and it's like, okay, what have we done bad? It, 
you know, we sort of just have to own up to it. It also is the beautiful thing of not having a responsibility to somebody else is that we can just be fully open and we don't risk our jobs or anything like that. I think that's probably the worst part of a normal company is that there's that fear or that risk that if you say something that you might get fired. And so we're really lucky to be in that position. And, you know, you said that it was, you know, not just a marketing document and it just sort of occurred to me, the three of us as siblings, we all actually studied marketing. And I think we truly believe that the best way to position yourself is as open and transparent as possible. And it actually, in a way, is a bit of a marketing strategy. And I think, you know, maybe that's to potential future employees or, you know, we don't actually have to market anyone to sell our product to, but we need to be, you know, held in really good esteem for future employees. It's quite a competitive market. Salaries are really good. So we want to get the best talent. Um, And also for startups, you know, when there's a startup who's raising capital, but they're, you know, the next hot new thing and they're impact aligned and, you know, it can become quite competitive. And so we want people to think that we add value. And so we're sort of setting this image for ourselves because we think it's what's the right thing to do. But I also think it's the best thing to do. So when um, a new potential employer comes or a potential or something you might want to work with, they can see that that's who you are and that that um, way of working is kind of in the bones of the organization. Yeah, and I think that I think that, that adds value for people and I think people want that. Um, and, yeah, as I said, we're lucky that we can do that. One thing that you mentioned was the granting. Um, I'd love to just hear a bit more about... The, the way you, the, your approach to granting because I know that it's not um, the, your approach is not quite the same as another family office or another investment company or another company in general where it might be something that's done will at least reviewed each year how much money could be spent on, um, you know, on grants or donations depending on how much profit has been made. And I know that you guys do it a little bit differently. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, so I think there are sort of two aspects of this. The first aspect is that um, with this wealth, we feel a responsibility that we should be granting it. We don't really believe that, you know, single people or family should be holding a vast majority of wealth. We think it should be distributed. And we definitely think granting is a important part of that and a necessary part of that. Um, and then on the other side, we also, we don't believe that all solutions or problems can be fixed through investment. So there are things that just need granting money to make them better. So from a starting point, we knew that granting was part of this for those two reasons. And then the opportunity was that we could pull granting out of this into a different entity. We could have the profits that triple make from the investments go into that and we could grant out. But we felt that that wasn't values aligned, that that the granting was then determined by the success of the investments. And we didn't want to be making investment decisions to increase financial returns so that we could increase granting. We wanted it to be 100% aligned. And so we decided that when we created our financial return, we included 
granting as a negative 100% return. So basically you invest it and you lose your money straight away. Um, And one of the reasons we did that is because we want our investments to be aligned with our granting and they should be solving similar issues through different solutions. And we didn't really, the old school model is really, you know, you have a company or you have a family office. You don't think about where your investments are going. You don't think about what the investments what impact they have on the world. You make a bunch of money and you say, okay, I'll give away a bit of that. And so that didn't really make sense to us. It it made a lot more sense to us to really integrate it into the overall vision and think about how we're solving different problems. And so, you know, some things can be solved through investments and some things can only be solved through granting. And we've, we've found that the things on the really pointy end that, are, you know, systems change, the things that's really going to change the country and the world for years to come, they're really in the granting side and, you know, specifically advocacy because government has such a huge role to play that you just can't have that sort of intervention through an investment. Yeah, it's really refreshing to hear you say that that investment won't work to help with with um, with every organization or, or company. Yeah. And so when we when we do our, we have sort of a financial expected return and an impact expected return. And the grants are huge impact expected return, which, you know, for example, an advocacy thing that's going to change the way government thinks about climate change or, you know, how we, you know, support social services and things like that. They have a huge public return. Um, so I think that, yeah, if those, if, if the externalities were actually costed in, then those investments or those grants would have a huge financial return to the public. Um, it's just that those things aren't currently costed financially. Yes. Yes. Yep. It's like how we tend to view the, the environment as a resource that, you know, is, is infinite and basically never gets depleted and that, Mm. um, you know, it'll, no matter how much we take from it, it it never reduces in value. And it's sort of, I suppose I see a link between those two, between what you're talking about and that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if we were costing externalities appropriately and there was a price on carbon and a, a price, you know, the same way that you have to pay for rubbish going to a tip, if there was, you know, if every company had to pay for what they were putting out into the world, um, it would it would make investments so much clearer. It's also, I think that's the way of the future at some point in time, that more externalities get costed in. And that also, you know, that's the same as, you know, carbon offsetting. It's people just in, on the public, on the private market, paying for their externalities rather than it being forced, but they're still doing it. That also reaffirms our, our perspective that sustainable companies are better long-term because they won't have to do that to catch up. Yeah, because they're already playing that game. So they're mm-hmm. sort of already, um, those things will be costed into their financial models. Yeah, and, and because they're already looking on ways that they wouldn't be polluting. And so yep. there's there's not anything to pay back. So it sounds like the risk, uh, there'd be less risk associated with investing in, in those sorts of companies. Yeah, and you know we firmly believe that. And through COVID, there was there was less volatility of sustainable public companies 
because for all of those reasons that they they have different risks already priced in. So that's something you guys noticed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, that's really interesting. So in terms of investment, um, you know, we've spoken a little bit about your impact calculator um, and how it works and how you developed it. Love to just sort of drill into that a bit. If you could just give us an over, overview of of the impact calculator and how that might be different from from a normal way of choosing where you'd like to invest. Yeah. So, I guess when we decided, going back to the start, when we decided that we were going to be impact agnostic and just be open to any type of impact, we then realized that it was going to be really hard to compare impact. So, how do you compare a startup who's trying to you know, recycle plastic bags to a wind farm, for example. And so we decided from, and we're all very numbers people. So we decided from the start that we wanted to have somewhat of a calculator. And so we worked off impact management projects framework and they are sort of a standardized framework internationally on how to look at impact. And so we just put a few scores out of five for the different categories. And then we created a calculation that sort of, it adds extra value for additionality. So if you're going to disrupt a whole market or if you're going to change how other companies are actually doing their business, you get extra points. And I think that plays into the fact that we're trying to be replicable. So it's that company's also replicable. Um, And then it also adds extra weighting to negative consequences. So if we think that this company has a chance to go bad, we want to we want to be risk averse from that. So we put extra weighting on that to make sure we're really factoring that in. What are some of the categories? So it's sort of like, who is it? Who's it benefiting? And then how much would it benefit them? The speed of the impact, the additionality, the likelihood of the impact. So it sort of just gives a pretty round idea. And it's all completely subjective that it's just... And it's, it's also a forecast. It's what will this impact be? So the, it's, it's very subjective, but the value in it for us is that we can look back in a year's time and say, why did we make that decision? And we can be wrong about the impact calculator, but that we've made the decision on something, not just a gut feel. And then it, it draws out a number between negative one and five. So negative one to zero is sort of a negative impact investment sort of old school type investing and then there's sort of avoiding harm so it's sort of also sorry then there's neutral so it's just sort of a nothing to the world then there's avoid harm then there's benefit communities contribute to solutions and the last part is systemic change and so our process is sort of we get an opportunity it's become pretty obvious to us what we like and so if something is sort of just like not interesting to us at all whether we think that that's a negative investment or what we just sort of pass on it there and then but everything else we run through the impact calculator as a first step so it has to get to a a point on the impact calculator that we think is worthwhile going to the financial dd which is sort of how most people start their process and so I guess that's the biggest difference that other people just go straight to the financial DD, but they all have their different lens on it. So 
you know, a fam, a normal family office, you could show an investment and it might be interesting to half of them. And it's not because of the financials. It's just because whatever they're looking for, um, whether that be property or public stock or only debt or whatever, um, everyone does have a criteria. It just isn't necessarily impact and it isn't necessarily as in such a clear framework. I realize it's early days still for you guys, but have you had anyone that scored very highly on the impact calculator, a startup, for example, and have, you know, started trading and started to look like that, that impact out in the, um, in the market is actually pretty close to what you expected? Um, it's a good question. We, we ideally review our impact calculators for all active investments yearly. In reality, we don't have the resources to do that. And that's a sort of a thing that falls behind that we would love to be doing. Um, it hasn't really. So you're saying you don't quite have the um, capacity to review once they've, you know, started trading the, the actual impact out in the world. Yeah, so we, yes. okay. we would like to do it yearly, but we haven't been. We've also, um, over time, the way we answer the impact questions have changed because we've become more comfortable with it. So when we look back two years, we're like, we were off base on that. Um, but yeah, we, we also, we only really invest in aligned people. And so the impact might be off and it might be too high or too low, but we've never seen a company who we felt we were aligned with who are now doing something that we don't believe in. Yeah. They've yeah. never shifted dramatically. Um, mm. And I think that that's, at least that's really important to me. The way that I get comfortable with someone or something is the real intent behind it. Because if they're passionate about solving a problem, the way they solve it is less important, especially in a startup because startups change so much. But if they are really caught up on this problem and can't think about any other thing and just want to solve this problem, then hopefully they'll find a way to impact it at least a little bit. So we've never had any any company, you know, go belly up. Um, yeah. Except for the public companies. So the way we think about public companies is that they're an integral part of our portfolio because of the replicable model. Other people really want to have public stock on their in their portfolio for a number of reasons. Um, but public stock is super liquid. So we could sell it tomorrow and get our money back. Whereas in an investmental startup or a property, it's probably going to be years before we get it back and before we even have the opportunity to get it back. So the way we think about impact from a public company perspective is that we're looking for the best we can find today, but that can change tomorrow because we can sell today and buy something different tomorrow. Whereas an impact the impact for a startup has to live for 10 years. And in 10 years time, we still have to be proud of that impact. So on the public company side, we've had a, a few times when we've in, been investing in a company and then we've just thought about it some more and we're, we're like, okay, this company has a different something to what we were expecting. And we've never pulled the trigger and said, okay, that's enough that we don't want to be invested in it. But there's definitely been times where we've said, okay, we should monitor this 
from an impact perspective, do we still believe in them? Let's have this chat and done that sort of review process. Do you have you guys got any investments in cryptocurrencies? No, we're we're not in any cryptos. I think um, we're quite risk averse people. I think yes, generally, sure. and um, we're 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 huge on the impact side. So we don't see the 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 long term impact of cryptos is sort of like from my understanding at least is sort of changing the markets and decentralizing and shifting the power balance. And I guess the potential impact of that is quite high, and but the likelihood is low <laughs> and the financial risk is very high. And so it just sort of seems like an area that is um, out of our comfort zone. Yes. Yep. Understood. One of the projects I'd like to hear about is the apartment retrofit. 15 walk-up apartments, I think it was, that you're looking at renovating, but with as little significant change as possible. Yeah, so it's a a three-story apartment building and it's got 15 studios. They're quite small. It's sort of a 60s or 70s building and not much has been changed since then. And where is it? It's in Fitzroy in Melbourne. Cool. And so we we bought the property knowing that we wanted property as part of our out of portfolio and we knew that we could do something better than a different developer, but we weren't actually sure what the best thing to do was at the time. And so we've worked on it a bit. We we've had a few we 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 actually started working with an architect and it didn't work out. Um but we've gotten to a point now where we're really proud of it. And so the core idea is to make it financially replicable. So other investors who own similar buildings could see this as a model and they could do it themselves. It will never be, you know, a six star building or anything like that, but it is how do we take this building stock that is quite prevalent in the suburbs around Melbourne and give it an extra life rather than it being torn down and sent to landfill and something else being, you know, resource heavy built in its place. You know, the the core of the building is perfect. So how do we just extend its lifetime? And part of that is being really environmentally sustainable. So we think that there's an opportunity to create a, a new standard for retrofits and just bring up the environmental specifications. So doing things like, replacing the glass, adding insulation, adding solar. We, we were lucky because it's already an all-electric building, but we're increasing the efficiency of all the appliances and obviously keeping it all-electric. And that's sort of from the environmental side. And all those things are, are relatively basic. Um, none of them are surprising, but it's just sort of doing them all together and then having this other perspective of the social. So what's it actually like to live there? And, you know, they're really small spots, but they can be great. And how do you get natural light and how do you get nice airflow and how do you create a community? And so we're hoping to turn the car park into sort of a shared space and have a nice big shared laundry where people can hang out and have a barbecue area and just sort of make it a nice place to live as well. And then all of this has to be within a budget where we think other investors would do the same thing. I guess. And so we're working with Finding Infinity 
and they they did their a new normal um i guess project where they released a bunch of initiatives that could help melbourne become fully sustainable and one of the initiatives was retrofit existing building stock and so we're really working with them hard on how to do this and how to do it most efficiently Yes, I know um, Finding Infinity and the A New Normal Project well because we also worked on it, um, so very oh, close right. to our hearts. Yes, um, that sounds yeah, it sounds really positive. I think it's nice to hear a renovation project like that spoken about in terms of things like double glazed glass and insulation first and perhaps a different approach to the way the community works because I think in our industry often there's this tendency towards you know the experiential qualities of the space more the visual stuff and you you certainly can't mm. underrate the value of having a home that's just warm and not drafty you know i definitely take that over something that's um uh, a bit prettier if you like so i think it's yeah i think it's a really good position to take yeah and you know we we really respect architects and we think that they have a really really important role to play but we we worked with an architect um sort of a year ago trying to figure out how we could do this and they had different intentions to us basically they had a different priority list which was totally fine but they were hoping to do things that we didn't think were that important compared to other things and so we actually changed up our model and so we hired ross from finding infinity as the project lead and the architect works under him. And so the power balance completely changed from an architect running the project from a design perspective with environmental efficiencies to environmental efficiencies with the design under that. And so the priority of what was actually happening became really clear. Um, and so really, really happy with how that's worked out. We still think it'll be a beautiful place, but that's not the number one priority. Uh, I forgot to mention, but another part of the the idea is that we don't just want to put a bunch of money into it and then jack up rents because that doesn't really help anyone living in that community. That just invites people from different suburbs, more affluent suburbs into that building and then pushes those, that, those community members further out. And so not only do we want it to be replicable from a return perspective, but we also, we want to keep our revenue, our rent lower and it still be um, replicable. So part of the aim is not just to gentrify the building. So we, we are trying to keep it very minimal. And what's the approach to waste and composting for the building? Yeah. So um, it seems pretty obvious sort of to us, um, but it's on-site composting um it's you know when you have a a working garden so somewhere to grow fruit and veg it is amazing to have you know natural organic compost made from your own food scraps it, you know helps everything um so that's sort of that and then we will have recycling in general waste but i think the interesting thing is the way we're working with the architects to design the waste in the apartments is really to prioritize green waste and recycling over, I guess, landfill. And so how we design that into the apartments, what size containers we give for the different bins, where we locate those bins on the property, really taking those things into consideration because 
we're, we're firm believers that people will make change, but the best way to actually get that change to happen is just to make it easy. And so if we can make it super easy to compost, it's like, well, you wouldn't not do it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think if things are easy and people understand how to do them, then they will do them. And if you can add in a bit of enjoyment or, mm. you know, some nice experiential thing that, that happens through composting or it's a way for people to catch up with each other in the community, I think it just adds a bit of um, sort of turbocharges it a bit. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about some of the um, startups you've worked with. I thought um, Amber Electric looked really interesting. Yeah, so I um, I love Amber. I think they're a really cool company. Uh, basically, the way they work is they pass on – so they're an energy retailer and they pass on the cost of energy in its wholesale price to consumers and where they make their revenue is from a membership fee, just like a, a gym. So they just charge, I think it's 10 or $15 a month. And then they make no money on the electricity you use. As opposed to a normal retailer, they come up with a flat rate of electricity. Maybe it changes for off-peak and peak, but generally a flat rate of electricity, which is modeled so that it can take the ups and downs of the wholesale market. And then they put their margin on top. So just from a sort of intent perspective, Amber doesn't care if you use more or less energy, whereas a other energy retailer, the more energy you use, the more profits they make. So Amber is not at all incentivized to get you to use more energy. And so they are actually trying to help you find ways to lower your energy consumption. And that doesn't change their bottom line at all. It also gives people the opportunity because they're getting the wholesale price they can pick and choose when they use their energy based on the price. And so basically in Australia, the way that the pricing works is it's higher in the morning and higher at night because there's less renewables and because there's higher demand because everyone's at home, morning, breakfast, dinner time. And during the day, it's much cheaper because the sun's out and there's less usage. But as a normal consumer, you're not incentivized to put things to use things during the day to capture that lower price because you're just getting a flat price. So with Amber, you're actually incentivized to do your washing during the day or put a timer on your dishwasher and things like that to get that low charge. Um, And so for me, it's like you're putting the control in the consumer's hand. It's a win-win and it's better for the environment. And so it's like all of those things really line up where everyone has the same intentions and that's what makes it a really cool company, I think. <laughs> yeah, love it. That that style of um, that style of consumer engagement must have um, uh, must be able to play out in other industries as well. I would have thought. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure. And you know, it it's not for everyone. You need to be um, much more engaged to get the benefit of it because you need to be checking when the price is up and when it's down, and you know. deciding when should I use different things. But if you can um, and if you want to make those changes, it's super easy to. Um, And even, you know, setting your water heater to go on during the day and heat up the whole tank so you've got it for at night, it's just super easy. Um, You can set that sort of stuff on a timer. Um, And it means that you're going to end up with lower electricity bills and that you've used renewables to do that sort of win-win. 
Mm, absolutely. The other one I'd like to talk about is is Nightingale, um, and I'm connected to Nightingale as we've we bought one a couple of years ago, and we're moving in in January. We're one of the um, awesome. Congratulations! New, yeah, thank you very much. So we're excited about that, um, and hopefully we'll have Jeremy Jeremy McLeod, the founder of Nightingale, on the show in a um, mm. couple of episodes. And could you just give us a, a quick overview of what Nightingale is? So they, um, they're basically a property developer that builds green apartments and they, they aim to keep costs down. You know, they're, they're certainly not cheap, but they are, they're not actively trying to increase their return. And they also give a, I think it's 20%. Is it Disability housing or is it housing choices? Housing choices sounds right, but I am not 100% sure. Yeah. I think I think it's housing choices. So um and so partnering with a not-for-profit and actually selling them those apartments and giving that not-for-profit the autonomy and ability to give those apartments to those in need. We think that's really cool. And so um it's just it's it's one of the best type of social developments in the property space that we've seen, and that's why we've supported them. We think they are one of the best in class in Melbourne. How have you guys been involved with with Nightingale? Yeah, so we've we've invested in a few of their projects. Um, we think they do really amazing stuff. We think that you know their buildings are beautiful. They also perform really well environmentally. Um, and then on top of that, they have a, I think it's a 20% allocation to housing choices. Um, so I think from a few aspects, they're really great. I think the only aspect that, that we don't love is that it's new building stock, but we're very aware that it's necessary and that it's a part of the future. And so we look at sort of our investments in each asset class is sort of what is the best development in Melbourne that we could invest in at this point in time. And, and we think that's Nightingale. And so we've, we've supported them a few times. We, we think that they do great work and we're, yeah, we're excited to support them. And what about uh, Nusu College? Could you tell us a little bit about who they are and, and how you have been able to in, invest in a school? Yeah. Nusu College is a really cool one. Um, so that's, a Indigenous-led school and I guess a school being a not-for-profit, um, we were never going to, you know, there was no use taking equity um, or, you know, actually owning part of the company because it was never going to return anything. And so I think this is a really cool way that um, debt or fixed interest, whatever, however you want to say it, can be used. So they they get a certain amount of revenue from the number of kids they have in the school and so they can rely on that revenue stream to forecast, assuming they can have a number of kids in the school. And so based on that revenue forecast, they can say, we can afford to pay back X, Y, Z per year. And therefore, we can take a loan of this much now, and which gives us the opportunity to do a whole range of new things moving into the future. And so that's what we did with them. We it was a bunch of impact investors who sort of created a syndicate that would, or a group um, that would invest all together. It was probably on better terms than they could get 
from a bank or a sort of normal in, institutional investor. Um, and so it's a really exciting way for us to give people an opportunity to do things without necessarily taking part of their company. Um, and I guess that's sort of what's good is that there is a financial instrument that suits different things at different stages. Um, so we're really excited about that. One thing that's core to us is, you know, um, that this is Indigenous land and how do we respect that and how do we support that and how do we give them autonomy? Um, and so for us, it also doesn't feel right taking equity in Indigenous companies. Um, and so we think that debt is a really good way to support them on, you know, the, in this case, schooling, but in a bunch of activities. Yeah, so it's, it sounds like they'd retain a level of agency um, through that through that model rather than through a, you know, a, as you say, like taking equity in the company. Yeah, and f- for the record, it's our desire totally that if we were ever to take equity, it's it's not to have any agency over the path of the company. The, the way we like to invest is to support a founder and that, you know, if we think that we could really add value to that company, that we're probably not right because we're not the ones running it. We want to find a founder who can hire people to support the spaces that he or she needs and or have the skills in-house already and we can support them financially and they can go and do what they do best. Um, But often in the investing world, it doesn't work like that. I noticed that you've also undertaken a gender-smart assessment across your portfolio companies. Can we just hear a little bit about how... um, yeah, how, how it works and, and I suppose what you hope to get out of it. Yeah, so we, we think gender equity, gender equality is a, a real issue, um, especially in, in investing world. So not only from the, the types of organisations that people are funding, generally are male founders, um, and then also the decision makers in the room are also normally male. So on both sides, it's an issue. We come um, from a, like a, our mum has always been the sort of like financial leader of the family. So we sort of grew up with this idea that that didn't necessarily exist. Um, And, you know, we're obviously aware of our world. So we we know that that's not the case in the broader context. But so it seems obvious to us that there, there needs to be equality in this. And we, we actively try and support companies who have a better gender balance and we include that when we're looking at diversity sort of things. But we, don't, we wouldn't invest in something just because it was a diverse company or female-led or something like that. It, we need the operations of the business to also be awesome. Um, and we wouldn't not invest in something because it had a male founder. So... Um, we, we don't have like a strict rule on that sort of stuff. What we're really, the core interest to us is that the operations of the company are doing something awesome, but we didn't want to not think about that. And so we, we did just a, an assessment of every company that we've invested in. We just sent them out a survey. We, We just asked them to answer a bunch of questions on, the makeup of their board, the makeup of their founding team, the makeup of um, their managerial team and some pretty simple questions. And I think the first time we did it, we did it just because we didn't know what was going to come out. 
and it's a it's a yearly review, so we've just done the next one. Um, I think more than anything, we just want to share with the companies that we work with that this is important to us. And so we're just sort of keeping it on everyone's radar that we're not necessarily going to say, no, we're not going to fund you. But we, we want to say, we need you to be thinking about this because the world needs to be thinking about this. And that survey is just one way to do that. It also provides us with some really good insights into our team, um, the companies we're supporting, if we're actually being true to what we're saying. Um, if it came out that we were 100% male founders, that would be really disappointing and we'd have to sort of go back to the drawing board and see what was up and how that happened and what systems led to that and, you know, what what we can do to sort of help the industry shift. I mean, have you noticed any shifts since you've started the company? Is there any is there any sort of groundswell towards gender equality? Um, there's definitely movement. I don't know if it's since we've started the company. You know, it's only been three years, but there is definitely movement in the world around supporting female-led startups. There's definitely a bunch of funds that we've seen that are investing only in either female-led or female-focused products and services. Um, we really struggle with this one because we want to support female-led organizations. But as I said, we don't feel like that is where the impact has to end. And so, and it's sort of finding that balance of, is there impact in just giving female startups the empowerment that they deserve um, that male founders have been getting for the past 30, 40 years? Is that a necessary thing in this, you know, progression towards equality? Is that enough? Or do you, do we want a founder with a really great product or service as well? And so we grapple with this issue. Where we've landed at the moment is that we want, ideally, we want a diverse team and we would love to support female-led startups, but we also want the impact from the business operations. And so it's sort of like ideally a, a double impact. Um but we spend a long time talking about this sort of stuff and it's it's not a clear answer, I don't think. It does sound like a potential opportunity for another calculator <laughs> down the track. <laughs> yeah, that's, we, could, we could add a bonus for like core diversity or team diversity or something like that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a bad idea. What does investing look like, do you think, in the next seven years? What do you, what do you see the big changes will be? Yeah, I definitely think that there is a shift. I think that people no longer look at you sort of weirdly if you say impact investing or for-purpose investing, things like that. I think people understand it. I think most people are sort of open to doing it on a few investments but not their major stuff because, we, you know, we need that for our financial returns or whatever the reason is. And then they, they do a bit of impact investments on the side. But I definitely think that, you know, there's a groundswell. There's definitely more people doing it, um, but there's also there's also more opportunities. So there are funds coming out that are climate funds. There are, you know, a whole bunch of different products for investors that actually fit into impact. And I think that that also comes from like the consumer demand. You know, when you think about super, ethical super is 
is so obviously going to be the future, I think. Um, and you can see that in, in the consumer preferences. And if big institutions like super ha- are going to be ethical, there's, there needs to be a lot of financial products that they can buy to fit into their investments. And so I think that those products are coming. Um, and I think that there is a groundswell and I think it will change. I think looking forward, I think five to 10 years, all the supers will have an ethical or be ethical, hopefully. Um, it seems crazy that that's even a, a thing, you know, like an investment that we all make for our future. Also killing the environment just is a bit crazy. Um, and then I hope that, you know, more family offices are switching. Companies are definitely switching the way they think. Investment funds are definitely switching. I think it's slow. I think that it starts off with just, you know, a carve out of any amount. So it's, okay, we'll start with 10% and we'll move. And um, But I think it's happening. And a lot of companies now have sort of a negative screen. And so that's sort of one stage less than impact, but it gets rid of all the negative investments. And that's a really good start. You know, let's, you know, not harm the world as a start. And then we can look at actually improving it. But the fact that we're already at most organizations or a lot of organizations are not doing that harm anymore. So I think that that was an important step. And I think the progression is still happening. It looks like the way you've set up the business has been quite iterative. Do you think there's any other big changes for you guys on the horizon? And how will you know when it's it's time to kind of evolve? Or how do you, how do you know when it's time to shift? Uh, I think there are definite changes to come. But I have no idea how we're going to know when. Um, I think I would be disappointed if this is where we end up. I think we have a lot more to learn. I think we have a lot to change. It is iterative because that's the way as people we like to be. We we like to learn as we're doing and then we find new information and we change course for whatever reason. Um, how to do it on a, you know, on a small scale, it becomes very obvious. Okay, there's a better solution to this problem. Let's just change the better solution. And because we're relatively new and nimble. It's been easy to change. You know, there haven't been that many processes in the way. There's no bureaucracy, all of that. But as we grow, the processes become more ingrained in the way we do things and then changing it becomes harder. So I think that's a challenge we've we've got as we start to expand our team on how do we still be iterative and change pretty quickly. I think on small things, it's easy to change, but on the bigger things, it's harder. I think that how we decide when this replicable model has proven itself is going to be really hard and what we do next. And, you know, when we started this as the three of us, we had less clarity about what we wanted to do. And the more we're learning, the more clarity we're getting and we each have our individual perspectives. And so when it does come to that time, how we decide as a three, what the focus should be or how we should have the most impact going forward is going to be really hard. And I think that we're just, I think in true style to ourselves, we're just going to have to figure it out at the time. And we'll, you know, I think we're pretty good like that. We'll, we'll have a pretty intense session. We'll 
probably get frustrated with each other. We'll bang out some ideas and generally we, we come to a, a pretty solid conclusion. You know, so far it's been, it's been really good. We're, we're lucky to have the experience we do. And I think we've set up the, the system so that if anyone feels like it's not working for them, they can, they can say, no, I don't like this, or they can, you know, step away and we've put in place the opportunities where if, if someone didn't want to be working on this, that would be fine. And they could, they could leave entirely or we could do the work on their behalf. And, you know, so we've, we've made it intentionally flexible. Jake, it's been so great chatting to you. All the best with Triple and Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to Make Good. If you'd like to learn more about Triple or get in touch with them, please check out their website at www.tripple.com.au. They'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to hear more of Make Good, please subscribe to the show on your podcasting service. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamalab.com.au. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. And this podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. Catch you next time.